you won't notice that it's getting easier until a day comes when the, the difference, the delta is big enough that you do notice. So you don't notice the incremental change until one day something reminds you that, oh my gosh, I used to be terrified of this thing. I'm Brian Kramer. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is making smaller shifts. It's the small shifts in our lives that can create epic outcomes. Your journey to be more deeply connected into the life you truly deserve starts right now. Welcome to Humanly Possible, a podcast focused on small shifts that can make epic differences in our lives and at work. I'll introduce our guest, who is someone I admired from afar and am honored to have on the show. My previous, I was just saying before we got started that my previous uh, TED experience was led by a friend who made me watch her TED talk before I took the stage at TED. And so I'm totally like excited to be able to meet her and talk to her as if she's not here already. So uh, I'll introduce Dr. Amy Cuddy. Um, she's a social psychologist, best-selling author, award-winning Harvard lecturer, and expert on the behavioral science of power, presence, and prejudice. And that TED Talk I was talking about is called, if you haven't watched it yet, and you're not one of the, I think, 58 million people that haven't watched it yet, it's called Your Body Language May Shape Who You Are. Named by The Guardian was one of the 20 online talks that could change your life. And it's been viewed more than, like I said, 50 plus million times and is the second most viewed TED Talk ever. That's really cool. So Amy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Perfect I, match of interests. Yes, very much so. In fact, um, this whole idea of shifts and what's going on right now, you might say that it's a big shift in everything. It's not just a small shift. How does everything that's happening right now, how do you see that as part of the makeup of shifting and how humanity is shifting? And, and how does that play with some of the things that you've studied and learned and created? Well, it's funny because I talked about in, in my TED Talk how these, I think I said, tiny tweaks can lead to big changes. Right? And the, the idea there was by shifting your body language a little bit for even a couple of minutes a day over time you can change the way you behave and interact and even change your outcomes. I didn't mean overnight that it fixes everything. But my book really got into that a bit more. And I, I talk about self-nudges. The concept of nudge became popular in the last decade through people like Cass Sunstein and Dick Thaler and some behavioral economists, Danny Kahneman, who were talking about how we can use science, really experimental psychology, to shift people's behavior maybe toward more ecologically friendly behavior, for example. So how do we shift people through things like normative influence? And I think those ideas are really important, but I like the idea of people having agency. I think the feeling of agency and the knowledge that one has agency is critical to your overall well-being. And so Part of me doesn't love the idea of kind of surreptitiously nudging other people, but I do like the idea of us nudging ourselves. The nudge work that I was referring to, like Sunstein and Thaler and Kahneman, that was about little small changes to how to messaging and how it leads to big changes. And I felt like, you know, people can do this for themselves as well, right? They can be aware of what's happening and do it. So body language is a part of it, you know, changing the way we carry ourselves. For example, one of my lab managers 
used to brush her teeth with her hand on her hip just to get herself to open up more, you know, in line with the idea of power posing and expansive posture and feeling more powerful. So she found ways to shift, like even the way she set up her desk so that she'd have to reach farther for her mouse back in the days of the mouse. And she had pictures of her family up on her wall, up high so that she'd be forced to look up during the day, things like this. There are other examples of that, like changing the way you feel before you do something stressful. So rather than sort of framing your feeling as anxiety, there's you know good work showing that if you say to yourself, I'm excited, it actually boosts your performance. So basically you take a high arousal emotion that's negative, anxiety, and turn it into a high arousal emotion that's positive, excitement, and it changes things. So those are the kinds of little you know tiny tweaks or, or small nudges that I like to talk about. I do think that what's happening now is another category. It's a giant nudge that nobody really planned, right? So the nudges that you're talking about first are nudges that people are sort of being strategic about. Then there are self-nudges where we're being strategic about for ourselves. But now all of a sudden, everything changed suddenly and we had to change with it. And to me, honestly, you know, a lot of my belief about small incremental change is that people aren't good at big change. So if you set a New Year's resolution, you're likely to fail because it's likely to be too big, too distant, and it requires too many steps to get there. And at every step, that's an opportunity for failure. So what I think is fascinating, okay, that's a goal, a giant change that you set for yourself and fail at. This is a gig- an even bigger change that was thrust upon us, but most of us have adapted. And that's both reassuring and frightening, I think. So, you know, I was talking with an author a couple of days ago about this. And, you know, she was saying, part of me feels reassured by this because I used to read about, you know, how people adjusted in times of war. And I thought I could never be that person. And now here I am. Like, it's not wartime, but it's pretty extreme. And I'm, you know, when people call me up, I'm like, I'm okay. Not great, but I'm okay. I've adjusted. I don't wake up every day and feel like I'm in a nightmare or a parallel universe. I'm like, well, this is what it is. On the other hand, it also reveals to us how quickly we can become complacent to very bad things happening, which I think is happening right now in other ways. And so that also is kind of shocking. And so she said that every Sunday, she says, look, it's best for everyone for me to just get my work done, like to get it done. But she said, on Sunday, I take time to think about the people who are struggling so much more than I am. Like, so I do not become complacent. So I remember that this is not an easy adjustment for everybody, that for many people, it's life-threatening, not just if you get the virus, but also if you lose your work or your community or you know, so many other things. So I thought that was a really interesting way to look at the idea of gigantic change thrust upon us. Wow, we do it well. But let's think about that both, you know, like think of both sides of the coin. I love the reverse engineering of that to look at the big change. And then and now what are the small things I can do out of that? So it's almost like you're reverse engineering the small shifts that you need to now make to adapt to the big change. You're right. Like that is another small shift. So her taking that time on Sundays, that is a small shift. And like she says, it's going to prevent me from becoming sort of inured to this bad news. Well, what's one thing that felt small to you at a time, any time in your life, but it ended up becoming a bigger shift down the road and you realize it now? 
I think the, the most sort of obvious one in my professional life, you know, I really was terrified of giving public talks and I thought I would die. Like I went into the most extreme version of fight, flee or faint. And, you know, I really did almost quit graduate school the day before my first year talk because I was sure that I would fail so miserably that I'd be kicked out anyway. And my advisor said to me, you're going to give this talk. But she also said, I want you to give every talk you're invited to give because you won't notice that it's getting easier until a day comes when the the difference, the delta is big enough that you do notice, right? So you don't notice the incremental change until one day something reminds you that, oh my gosh, I used to be terrified of this thing. Wow, remember back then in a way that you remember back to like, remember when I was afraid there was something under my bed at night as a kid? That's sort of how that worked for me. And she was exactly right. I did not notice it incrementally. I noticed it when I gave a talk and I was like, oh, that was fun. And something then reminded me of how I used to feel. So I think, you know, for me, that's the best sort of professional example. I'm sure there are many more. I think in my personal life, There's also just, you know, understanding the people that you love, the kind of their families of origin and how that affects who they are and how they respond to things. And you need to understand that to learn how to respond to their reactions to you. And that's hard to do because sometimes their reactions don't make any sense and they seem irrational. But then you realize that if you can, yours probably do too to them. Right. So we all are bringing this baggage, this sort of family baggage in. And I think in my best relationships, I've learned to, first of all, understand where people are coming from and why the reactions that they have occasionally that seem irrational seem irrational and how to respond with kindness and understanding and go, this is not about me. That's the thing. It's not about me. And that's hard to do because you get kind of triggered by their overreaction and you want to do the same thing. So it's about self-regulation and it took me a while to learn how to do that. Yeah, there's a time in between when someone says something and a person responds where you have a choice. There's a choice point of what you say and how you, what you heard and digesting it and then responding back and saying, this is how I'm going to respond. And, And our first thought is fight or flight. Like this must be about me, trigger, 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 trigger. Totally. And then you throw it in there and you're like, oh, what have I done? We've created this mess and what are we going to do from here? And there's so uh, many different ways that we look back. And I know you talk about this in your book, Presence, as well about how we feel afterwards, after we've said stuff and we're like, oh, what am I going to do? How did I do this? That's a great point because I feel like for me, you know, I've been through this pretty intense episode of online bullying in academia that I'm writing about now. And and one of the things that surprised me about how I reacted was that actually I was pretty good at not reacting, but responding. I was better at self-regulating than I thought I would be. Now, in my brain, there was a war going on and lots of things that I wanted to say, but I was really good at managing myself and not reacting. Partly because when you're being bullied, no response is acceptable. And you learn that pretty fast. But for me, it also was about the long game. So that's when I really started to understand the long game. Like this is not about winning. And 
like I'm not, no one wins here. It's a war. No one wins. But also in the end, I really need to feel that I carried myself in a way that was self-respecting and dignified. And I will not bully the bullies. I can't just shoot back because I can't live with myself. So it is about the leaving the situation, not with regret, but with a sense that I did what I could do. So it almost seems insurmountable when someone does do that, when there is that bullying nature. It's like everything just becomes like this big mountain of pain and why would you do that? And where did this come from? And, and all of that. And at the same time, you do have this choice of what you do and how you react. And coming back to these small shifts, it seems so massive on how you can deal with this and not doing anything with it. Playing that long game kind of feels like I'm letting them get away with it. Like, I wonder if I weren't writing a big book on this, I might feel like I was letting them get away with it. But because I pretty quickly went to work on putting together a very detailed proposal about sort of like fleshing out the psychology of these dynamics with some memoir, I'm really hoping to not use names of bullies. But because I knew that I could do that, I knew that I wouldn't, even though I'm not naming them and shaming them, I'm not really letting them get away with it. Because I hope that the next someone who reads that will go, oh, okay, I know how to get support. I know what to do. I'm not, this is not going to happen to me. So yeah, maybe those guys got, got away with it, but a lot of people won't in the future. <laughs> so I don't know that everybody has that, the luxury of you know, being in a position to actually write in this meta way about their experience and yeah, know that it well, will be read by some people. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, I was bullied in elementary school and, and I never got a chance to tell that person that, but I did years later go into a subway and he served me a sandwich for lunch. So I felt a little bit better about myself. I think there are little moments in time where it definitely plays a, a role later on in life where, you know, not calling that person out, not doing that thing actually is winning. And we won't know it until it happens, but there is a moment where you just thank God that you didn't do that. For sure. I mean, I'm definitely a believer and in the recent Netflix documentary becoming the, the Michelle Obama, you know, documentary, when somebody says, you know, you're known for this, when they go low, we go high. You know, how do you feel? She's like, I try to do it most of the time. It's hard. First of all, I find her incredibly wise and just, she really walks the talk. That message plays in my mind over and over again. And that, that's the person I know I want to be. Do I want to be more like Michelle Obama? or more like anyone who I would call a bully, definitely Michelle Obama. <laughs> so it's worth it. And I think that you do have moments later in life where you go, oh, it turns out the bully's not really doing that well. And I don't know, I'm not sure that you feel schadenfreude about it. You just go, they didn't win. And that right there is the shift. That is the moment. That is the self-nudge where you decide that for yourself and you just say, okay, I'm going to make that moment happen right now before I answer back. And I love that. So just to close out, um, I, the time has gone by so quickly. I, I could sit here and talk to you all day, but I'd love to leave out with what a leadership lesson was in your life that really changed the way that you approach life and business and like your next book, the way that you're approaching things in life. What was something that really sticks out to you in, in a way that changed you as a leader? I guess I would say for me, the most memorable leadership lesson 
And it was consistent with my theoretical beliefs already, but was from Jeffrey Brown, who's a Baptist minister here in Boston. I used to teach a case about him at Harvard Business School. He did this work with young people in the Four Corners area of Boston back in the late 80s and early 90s to help to reduce gang violence. And I taught that case because it was all about building trust as opposed to going in with an agenda and saying, you're bad kids and you need to be in this after school program or, you know, we're going to do this or this or this. Instead, he and a few other young Baptist ministers, you know, they were young black men and they would walk the streets at night between 10 and three and just listen to these young people with no agenda. It took a while until they were able to sit with them, but they'd sit on stoops and just listen to them and just to understand what was happening. And it totally humanized these kids and allowed them to help them. So they built trust. To me, the idea that trust is a conduit of influence is at the core of everything. And there's no one who like sort of, you know, personifies that for me better than Reverend Jeffrey Brown, who also has a great TED Talk about this, if anyone's interested in learning more. Oh, that's a great way to leave off. And that could be a whole nother podcast into itself on trust. That's a big topic and, and I love it. Thank you so, so much. This time went by so fast. So we'll link to everything that you just said, including that recent TED Talk and good luck on your next book and then everything. Thank you. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you love this episode, please subscribe. We love having subscribers just like you. Download a few more episodes. And if you feel moved, we would so appreciate a review. I'd love to also hear your key takeaway. What impacted you from this episode? You can tweet me your answer and reach out on Twitter at Brian Kramer. That's Brian with a Y, Kramer with a K. And definitely be sure to join us in our Facebook group. We have just under 3,000 humans just like you and me looking to connect even more imperfectly. Until next time.